0: Well, it's nice to be back home, so to speak. Nice to see the place at least filled, to a certain extent. And uh, it is kind of weird to stand up here as if you're speaking to an audience, but they're not there, except that blinking light, you know. But uh, you know, we're all evangelists to one degree or another, aren't we? We're all to spread Yahweh's word. That's what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, two, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. He tells us to go out and teach the word, each of us. We don't have to leave it to the ministry. We can also talk to our friends, talk to our neighbors, and many brethren are doing so. And it's reflected in the, the growth that we're seeing If you ever engage someone over scripture who simply refuses to see the truth but instead uses all the tactics at his disposal to counter what he's being told to avoid facing the facts, then you have experienced the frustration of many who understand the truth but can't understand about those who don't or won't. There's almost an innate resistance within the human mind not to step beyond what they feel comfortable with. The obstinate person will revert to a number of dodges to avoid facing simple black and white. That's what I want to talk about today. And so it all helps to know how to navigate and maneuver those obstacles people throw at us when we're evangelizing the truth as they say forewarned is forearmed we are most successful at reaching open-minded individuals the person who's completely closed-minded you know uh titus three ten after the first and second admonition reject that's a heretic he calls him a heretic who simply won't listen nothing more he can do walk away and yahweh will work with him if he's having them called they don't accept what is, what is uh, brought to them, that's new to them. They like the spoon-fed uh, teachings that they grew up with or are familiar with. And that's a primary reason we publish a study Bible, so that people can look in themselves and do self-taught uh, studies and so forth through the Bible that we have, the footnotes and all the other helps in there. You can go back to the Hebrew and Greek source texts and see what it says and oftentimes that really clears things up you don't normally find that in a regular bible do you but we've got strong concordance at the back at least their dictionary so you can see the the number in the text and you can go to the back and look it up what the hebrew or the greek says and we're getting closer and closer to get those new bibles here it's been a long wait but uh, maybe just a few more weeks and we'll have it Okay, let's jump into the schemes of argumentation commonly used to avoid truth and defend error. Let's take one popular polemic. When their children complain and ask why they must do something, most parents say, because I said so. This is known as the bare assertion. I have the upper hand, so you will do as I say, no questions asked. It 's about status, well, my church teaches otherwise. How can I go against it? Why can't you if it's not true in the scriptures? It's my church, and that's what they believe, and that means that's what I believe. now, who has the greatest status in the universe? Well, Almighty Yahweh, what does his word say that's the that's the way you got to go. What does his word say? You will obey my word because I said so, Yahweh says, and there isn't any more we can bring to the table. If he says it, that's what we have to do, denominationally or otherwise. The more controversial a doctrine, the more, it seems, resistance is applied. One hot-button teaching that will elicit a variety of uh, uh, argumentative uh, dodges is, of course, the doctrine of the trinity. What's interesting, you go back and look at the history of it, it's something that developed over time. If you look into the Roman church history, you'll find that it took two church councils, Nicaea and Constantinople, and three men known as the Cappadocian fathers and several centuries to formulate this doctrine. What does that tell us? What does that say to us? When you have to work that hard to make a doctrine, it speaks volumes about the lack of evidence in scripture, doesn't it? You've got to create it. You've got to be your own Bible and create it. Otherwise, you can just quote the word if the teaching is there. Simple as that, which is what we try to do. We always go back to the word. Did you know that Sir Isaac Newton, that uh, famous mathematical and scientific genius, didn't believe in the trinity. He also had a deep interest in things biblical. He traced the origin of the doctrine, and he was right, back to a man named Athanasius, 298 to 373. He became convinced that before Athanasius, the Roman church had no trinity doctrine, and he was right, not formal. In the early 4th century, Athanasius was opposed by Arius, a man who didn't believe it, who affirmed that Yahweh the Father had primacy over Messiah. He was supreme. He had no equal. In 325, the Council of Nicaea condemned as a heretic the views of this man Arius, and the rest is history. Newton further asserted that in order to support Trinitarianism, the church deliberately corrupted the Bible by modifying crucial texts. For example... He claimed that the well-known words of 1 John 5 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and there are three are one, were not in the original. Pre-fourth century Bible. And he was right. We find the same evidence that it was they weren't there, they were added. Convinced that a massive fraud had perverted certain scriptures, Newton adopted the Aryan anti-Trinity position. Well, regardless of his efforts, the church won because it had the power of, to to win, might made right. So there you have the bare assertion tactic. It's right because I say it's right. It's not the proper way to investigate scripture, is it? When someone tells you it's right because I say it's right, unless you are Yahweh, then it makes all sorts of sense. Well, back on topic, you know, deceitful will use sleight of hand and twisted truth to convince you of their error or convince you that you are teaching error. Twisting truth isn't anything new, neither is it anything you're unfamiliar with. We see it all over the place. You won't find many in any walk of life or vocation who don't use twisted truth. From government to your neighborhood car salesman to your minister, except present company, of course. <laughs> Believe it or not, twisted truth, in all of its permutations, is part of our culture. It's been a part of human, almost a human anatomy, for thousands of years. It's, it's how people are normally persuaded. We're so used to it, we probably never stop to think about it, even when we ourselves are falling for this tactic. Someone teaches an erroneous belief not based on scripture, but uses slick rhetoric to make a case. And because many are not studied, they fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. A popular use of twisted truth in doctrinal argument is suppressed facts not telling the whole story, not giving the whole passage, perhaps. You leave out the part that contradicts your point. Children do it all the time. When they're caught doing something wrong or trying to persuade their parents to give in to their desires, why can't I jump off that cliff into the lake? Everybody's doing it. Never mentioning that a month ago, uh, one of their friends became paraplegic when he hit a submerged rock doing the same thing. Politicians love to suppress facts. They call it looking at things positively. They only tell you parts, the parts that support their agenda, while leaving out potential information that speaks against it. It happens daily in the news, in every news platform, in every network. I'm saying every one of them It's dishonest to claim they're reporting the news when it's really their news. Cut, filtered, homogenized for their means. And sometimes they're not even aware of it. You see, because every one of us, every single one of us has an opinion about something. Somehow, we all have our biases. You cannot report something without a little of that or a lot of that showing through. You have a bias. It's what you... You know, you have a bias even in what you don't report, even in how you emphasize something more than something less because you want to. Lots of ways. Twisted truth can happen. The Nazi propaganda, some of the best in history, said that the most effective of all propaganda techniques was the one-sided story. You leave out the other parts. That's why they call it propaganda. Propaganda. Then, of course, are the misguided preachers. I once heard a TV evangelist contending that 1 Timothy 4 allows him to eat a ham sandwich. The man began by reading verse 3. Forbidding to marry and contending to abstain from meats which Elohim has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of Elohim is good and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Stop. Stop right there. So, as long as you pray over it, you can eat that shrimp or that lobster and be right with Yahweh. But wait, keep on going. For it is sanctified by the word, set apart, made holy by the word. What is made holy by the word? Clean food, not unclean food, you see. He left out the essential part that had to be sanctified by Yahweh, in order to be edible. He suppressed facts. Neither did he go to the list of clean and unclean meats, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, and explain what is clean and what is not. So you can decide for yourself. Lobster, clams, shrimp, they don't meet the specifications for clean. They don't have fins, they don't have scales. So, uh, he also didn't emphasize the fact that says which Elohim has created to be received with thanksgiving which of wit, of them which believe and know the truth. And the truth, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. Kind of glossed over that real quick. So you didn't really give that much thought. The classic illustration we've I guess we've often used uh, is the time Elder Randy and I were involved in a Discussion, a debate, whatever, with a minister over uh, Yahweh's name. He pointed out that going from one language to another, names are transliterated, no, translated, and not transliterated. Transliterate means to carry the sound over from one language to another in their alphabet, in their, in their their words. My name would still be Alan, whether I went to Russia, China, or Zimbabwe. It would still be Alan. I wouldn't change my name to some Russian form, Chinese form, because there is none, none for me. So anyway, um, this fellow suppressed key evidence in his argument that names are translated he says not transliterated he said his name was Jeff and when he was working as a missionary in South uh, America or Central America where it was they called him Jefe in Spanish see they changed my name Jeff to Jefe until Jose came to our rescue and says Jefe just means boss (laughs) I learned that Uh, it's the only Spanish I know But I learned that one. Uh, It's just a common Spanish term of endearment. Like we would say boss. Like we would say, hey, buddy. Or, okay, sir. Or, hey, chief. You know. But he was using it for his advantage. Suppressing evidence. Maybe he didn't know. I'll give him that. Maybe he just didn't know. But anyway, um, we're so used to hearing the one-sided story, we often don't look for the missing facts. The missing links, as it were. Especially in the news it's it's really dishonest to claim unbiased reporting because no news is totally unbiased everything communicated shows personal bias to some degree as i mentioned we all look at the world through our own prism our own glass just you know they say if there's an accident and it's got several witnesses each one will give a different slightly different version because of the way they look at it because of the way they interpret you know what's happening from their perspective, from their understanding and so forth. So we look at the world that way and flavor our communications with our own views, our own viewpoints. Like adding commentary, leaving certain things out, interviewing only those friendly to our viewpoint, our position. In religion, deceptive teachers are good at proof texting, pulling out of the scriptures just what they want to Used to prove their point and ignore everything around it. Contradictory evidence is ignored and only evidence supporting their belief is used. That's probably the most common tactic of anyone trying to prove a point in the Bible. Anyone who's not either knowledgeable about it or is a little dishonest. For example, Sunday worship supporters will suppress the fourth commandment the Sabbath commandment. They'll just suppress it. Um, sometimes a, a movement, a denomination will just throw it out. Ignore the lifelong practice of all the prophets, apostles, and even Yahshua himself, who all kept the seventh-day Sabbath every week, all their lives. How can you argue against that? Instead, they focus on a few verses, like 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, pulling them completely out of context And they say Paul advocated worship on the first day of the week. So let's analyze this this passage. Paul writes, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the assemblies of Galatia, even so do you. Now notice, upon the first day was added, upon the first of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as Elohim has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. That's kind of odd. Think about that. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. They tell you this means passing the collection plate at Sunday morning church. Good night. First, it never says Paul was even going to be there the first day of the week. That's why he's sending out a direction in advance to take up a collection So when he's there, he'll have it. Doesn't say he's going to be there at church. In fact, he says do it on the first of the week. And doesn't necessarily mean first day because that was added by, again, guys who wanted to promote Sunday worship, the translators. And in advance of my coming, or my representative will do that too. So be ready when he comes. Second. There's nothing remotely connecting worship with taking up an offering of liberality. Get the context, for goodness sake. Don't just jump right in the middle of a passage and start proving something. The fact is, Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. Romans 15.26 tells us. They needed food. They needed sustenance. They needed clothing or whatever, hard cash. And Paul is coming to their aid, a one-man salvation army. Collect all this stuff, and on the first of the week, I'll come by, take it to the needy in Jerusalem, one assembly aiding another. Corinthians helped them out. So that's what they did. Another twisted truth technique is is the hasty conclusion, which is used quite a bit these days, especially on those who aren't steadied, who don't understand the whole concept or the word, what it's saying. You present a little bit of supposed evidence, then leap to a conclusion. Take the fallacious rapture teaching, for instance. It rests heavily on 1 Thessalonians four sixteen Quote, for the master himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of Elohim, and the dead of Messiah shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the master in the air, and so shall we ever be with the master. And they say this proves the rapture. Whoa, not so fast. Speedy. When does Yahshua come back? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 53 says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, he comes back. At the last trump. He's not coming back before then to pick you up and whisk you away. For one thing, it would have said so. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Oh, well, if the dead are raised incorruptible, why do they need rapture? For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. He comes after all the wars, all the plagues, and death have taken place you know there are seven trumpet blasts in revelation chapter eight and nine each of which announces a plague on this earth tribulation we call it tribulation hard times first you got hail and fire mingled with blood then you have a third part of the sea becomes blood then you have a third part of the water becoming wormwood bitter can't drink it Third part of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. Then you have locusts. Then the sixth one is warfare with a third of the people on earth killed. Then the seventh, you have seven thunders. Then Yasha returns at the last trumpet. Thunders, trumpet, virtually the same. He doesn't make two trips, even though they say, well... Before that, he'll come secretly for his saints. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, where you find he returns with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and the trump of Elohim. And they say his first coming is secret. It's silent, whisking people away. Two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Well, the one that's taken is taken and destroyed. They don't tell you that. They think he's taken under rapture, but keep on reading. Read what Yahshua said to his disciples about that. He said, where the eagles or the vultures are gathered, that's where they're going to be taken. So they got that messed up totally. He says, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. That means he's going to come doing things that Satan did? No, it's after Satan's done with his working. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. See, that's Satan. That's not him. He comes after Satan's part, and the tribulation is finished. There is no evidence anywhere in Scripture. None in Scripture. saying Yahshua returns twice. The first time in secret to snatch away his people in a rapture. The rapturers, whatever you call them, rapturists, they've invented that one. They created that one in order to make the square peg fit in the round hole. So they twisted prophecy, I guess. Amazing how people will buy into things. You know, the rapture wasn't even before 1870 or whatever, 1880. The rapture was not even a thing. It wasn't even a doctrine. There were some ideas way back, but it was not promoted by any church at that point. It's a, It's a recent doctrine. Again, if it's not in Scripture... Not in scripture. Then you have the hasty conclusion. Very effective when the audience doesn't understand the full teaching. A form of pulling the wool over their eyes. Many trying to affect a scholarly flair will use theological terms with Greek or Latin bases to sound knowledgeable. Way above everybody else. That means I'm very smart and you're not quite that smart. They'll throw around highbrow words like apologetics, preterist, eschatological, perusia, Christology, sola scriptura. They throw these things out. Oh, that guy's ooh, he's smart. Their eyes glaze over in bewilderment, and they cry out, "Well, whatever you say, you're more knowledgeable than I." Most simply, don't have the understanding or the patience to wade through the scriptures. And that's where you can come in. You can explain it to them. You can take your RSB. You can show them the note. See, here's what this is really saying. And I'm not saying it. The Hebrew or the Greek is saying it. Most simply just don't have the knowledge. They want a quick answer. Quick. Tell me what it is and I'll be happy. They don't mind if you skip too rapidly to a solution. The hasty conclusion is most effective when the audience wants to believe a teaching. They want to believe it. The they already do, and they just want a little more, uh, uh, you know, a little more understanding, and then they're happy with it. They want affirmation. They just want the slightest persuasion, and they'll go with it. This brings to mind another tact of twisted logic, an unprovable basis and unknowable statistics. It's virtually impossible to prove the negative. Prove that something does not exist. Like the non-existence of uh, anything, really. Like a missing link in the theory of evolution. Evolutionists would say, well, it just hasn't been discovered yet. We still believe it's there by all the evidence. How do you know that the missing link is going to prove that evidence that way and not this way? Well, you just wait. It's there. All the evidence points to one, and it'll be found one day, so their theory is no more than a fantasy faith. By the same token, no one can prove that Yahweh does not exist when there's a whole lot of evidence that he does. And this goes beyond anything we can even put our minds to. It's way above our intellect. You've got to learn how to weigh evidence. Think of yourself in a courtroom hearing testimony. Let's take the example of the Da Vinci Code that was popular, I don't know, a decade or two back, that Yahshua married Mary Magdalene. But there's no evidence. The author, Dan Brown, wrote that there's 80 other Gospels that competed for inclusion in the New Testament. What? The most scholarly evidence I've ever found, there was no more than 20 apocryphal Gospels. But he's found 80. See, so just make up, your, make up your sources, make up your, your evidence, and then people are supposed to believe it. But okay, let's go with that for illustration purposes. How many of these spurious Gospels talk about Yahshua marrying anyone? None. From the Gnostic Gospel of Mary Magdalene says nothing about Yahshua marrying her or anyone else. The only one that comes even close to linking Yahshua with Mary is the Gnostic Gospel of Philip, written between 180 and 250 CE. And this writing talks about Mary being Yahshua's companion. A Coptic word, a Egyptian-type word with the same vast range of meaning that it means in our language. Could mean anything, as our English word does. So what do we have for our defense? from evangels, numerous letters from Paul and the other apostles, the writings of Josephus and other secular historians written between 48 and 95 CE, which is long before this guy's source, containing eyewitness and second-hand testimony that Yasha was celibate with no special relationship with Mary Magdalene other than a friend. Yasha's marriage is to the saints, to us. He kept true. He kept pure to his marriage with the saints one day when they will marry him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Another device is the red herring. In a red herring argument, you intentionally digress from the real issue being discussed, introducing a side issue to try to throw them off track that has nothing to do with the subject at hand or only tangentially that gets them thinking in a different direction in an attempt to deflect attention away from the real question. This is done when someone can't answer the point. They have no clue how to respond to your point. It can be very subtle, and the new issue can often seem closely related, but it's intended to do something else, to throw you off. You could call it a form of changing the subject, like what the politicians like to call ad hominem, which is to the man. You start making accusations against his character, against his, who he is, and don't even talk about his point. Don't even talk about the thing he brings up, the subject under discussion. You just go after him, see, throw everybody off, and then they don't get back to the issue because they can't answer it. You've seen it. You've engaged someone about the Sabbath. The response, well, I keep every day holy. So what's that got to do with anything? What, what you do is irrelevant. It's not even scripturally compliant. You are not the authority, and Yahweh made the Sabbath to keep holy not any day, not every day, not three days out of the week. Or seven days out of the week. What you do is not the issue. They bring it up to say that, that there's some kind of authority. See, well, maybe he has something here because he does it. Oh, really? How about what the Bible says? Take another red herring. You know that his name is Yahweh. And you explain it to them. Oh, but he has many names. Many names. Show me that in the Bible. I want to see where it says he has many names. And they start spouting off titles. Yahweh Rafa, Yahweh Ropika. He's got many names. No, those are just additions to his name Yazidkenu the scriptures say his name alone is Yahweh Psalm 83 18 look it up in the Hebrew it's the Tetragrammaton one of the places in the King James where his name is an attempted transliteration and in large capitals look it up another is Isaiah 26 4 How about name calling? When you can't do anything but attack the person, you show that you have no rebuttal to his point. Demeaning someone has nothing to do with the discussion. Name calling is what children do in sandboxes. Politicians often use the faulty comparison. The faulty comparison is also a popular ploy used in the grace alone crowd. You explain that Yahweh expects obedience from his people to follow his truth, to obey him as he says. You explain that this is what he wants. And their response is, what are you trying to earn your salvation? What? Their response is to question your motives. If you want to question, question Yahweh's motives. See where that gets you. He tells you to to obey him so that you might have life. If you want to question motives, he's not going to save a law-breaking sinner no matter how much he claims he loves the Lord. And the proof is in the pudding. Those who are ultimately saved will be uh, counted worthy. I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm trying to be worthy of Yahweh's blessing, but they immediately jump, oh, you're, and the other one, the other one is, oh, you think you're better than I am, because you keep the law, you're better than I am. Uh, I don't know what you think, but I think I need to follow what Yahweh tells me to do, that's all that matters. I don't think I'm better than anybody, I'm just, in fact, that humbles me when I find out I can't keep it, like I want to keep it, somewhere I'm going to fail, and I have to ask Yahweh's forgiveness luke twenty thirty five but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world you 're not earning you 're trying to be counted worthy, and the resurrection from the dead, either marry or given in marriage first thessalonians two twelve that you would walk worthy of Elohim, who called you unto his kingdom and glory well related to the faulty comparison is the straw man you build a straw man when You misrepresent your opponent's position. You actually add something false to his argument is what you're really doing. And then they attack those flaws that they added as if it's part of the point. It's a key tool in the politician's box of tricks. Advertising is so full of it, so full of the straw man, and we tend to expect it from advertising. You don't expect it to be honest usually right so you try it yourself to see if it actually works no one thinks a TV commercial is going to make a completely fair comparison between their product and the competitions they create a straw man when they say so you mean that along with the commandment and feasts I need to bring a bowl to sacrifice when I worship on the Sabbath I didn't say anything about a bowl and sacrifice the Bible just says keep the Sabbath I didn't say that Oh, so I need to keep all 613 laws as well. I never said there were 613 laws or that I need to keep all of them or that you could possibly keep all of them. Some statutes in scripture are corporate laws. Others are governmental laws. I can't keep corporate or governmental laws. I'm just a person trying to follow the truth. Others are unique to Israel's theocracy, which has been usurped by our government. You know, they were under Yahweh and the uh, judges until they decided they're going to make a man leader. But that's been usurped by our government today. There's nothing we can do about it until Yahshua returns and sets up his government. We have to follow the dictates of the government as long as it doesn't violate Yahweh's word. Like punishing transgressors. We can't go out and be uh, Vigilantes. I mean, that's not our job. For the guy who is listening to debate, the straw man can be a powerful influence because it's so deceptive. Then there is ad populum, which appeal is made to general acceptance. Like I said, the, the kid that wants to jump into the, the lake, well, everybody's doing it, all my friends are doing it. The truth of an issue is established only on the basis of its popularity or its familiarity. I've never heard of such a belief. How can that be true? No one I know accepts that. It's a fallacy of many commercials. The ad says, buy our detergent. It's preferred over two to one by women who know. Women who know what? Or a survey shows that 82% of Americans believe in a trinity. Therefore, it must be right. Yahshua was teaching something perilous when he warned against wholesale deception out there in the world of religion or the fact that Yahshua and his disciples and the New Covenant faith were themselves outnumbered by the religious establishment by thousands to one. It didn't bother him. Truth is truth. The rest don't want to believe it. That's their problem. They'll deal with with Yahshua later. Or Yahshua's words in Luke 12, 32, fear not little flock. Why didn't he say fear not huge flock? For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So where does that leave the large flock? Historically, the majority has nearly always been wrong. And that's why Yahshua said, Little flock, because you have the truth. You're little. Not many people want the truth as it is, because it's tough. It's kind of like the old unleavened bread, you know? Hard tack, kind of hard, breaks your teeth. But it's the only way. Then there's non logic. In grammar, you have what's known as the non-sequitur. Riding my bike, my hat blew off. You ever seen a hat riding a bike? That's a non-sequitur. The subject becomes the hat. I don't remember ever saw that happening. It would be interesting to see, but it's a word in Latin means doesn't follow. Doesn't follow the logic. Doesn't follow the the line. In rhetoric, a non-sequitur is when a conclusion is drawn which doesn't follow the premise. It's not a specific fallacy, but a general term for a bad argument. A lot of the examples we've given can be said to be non sequitur. Things don't follow. They insert things into it. They take some things out of it. They add their own ideas. Here's a, here's a non sequitur from the political world. Bubba Jones, candidate for the Senate, has endorsed Lila Lovely, Hollywood biggest star. How does her celebrity endorsement of Bubba have anything to do with Bubba being a good senator? She saw all her life she's she's busy being somebody else as an actor. How does she know anything about character? I, I never got that. They quote a celebrity. What do they have to do? What, are they some kind of Einsteins that know all and supposed to follow whatever they recommend? How does a movie star have an inside track? I never could could get that. It's only because of name recognition, notoriety. But they're just in front of a camera. They're just like you are, but they're in front of a camera. Make lots of money. But what do they know more than you do? Non sequitur. Watch out when the logic doesn't follow the argument. Like, Yahshua resurrected Sunday morning. Therefore, we worship on Sunday. What? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where does it say his day of resurrection will now be a worship day? Where did he ever say that? He was already long gone by Sunday morning anyway. They don't understand that even much. So here's another sequitur. The feasts were observed with animal sacrifices. Animals are no longer sacrificed in our faith. Therefore, the feasts are abolished. What? Tell your hapless church friends that since the fire destroyed their church, their worship has now been abolished. Then there's the big lie. It's, it's a popular technique. Just keep repeating this same lie over and over and over in spite of all the arguments or evidence to the contrary until people start to believe it. You see that over and over in the media, over and over. Why do they keep running the same goofy commercials on TV over and over and over ad nauseum? Because they must do some good. They must convince some people they wouldn't spend millions of dollars running them. Despite the nonsense, they still create interest and name recognition for the product. So when they go to the store and look at all these names on the shelf, all these different products, they go for the one that's, ding, makes a impression in their mind because they heard it so much. That's the one they buy. I don't know about you, but we don't watch much TV, but if we happen to, you know, are surfing and see a commercial, it's so stupid. It has nothing to do with what they're selling anymore. It's just crazy. Anyway, it's a strange fact of human psychology that giant, totally outrageous lies are sometimes more believable than small lies, just by virtue of their bodaciousness. People feel there must be something to it because the claims are so extreme. Where there's so much smoke, there's got to be fire. Obtuseness. When all else fails, just stubbornly refuse to listen. Close your mind, shut your eyes. Don't listen to your opponent's points. No matter how good his arguments may be, when the opposition makes a point, just ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, and walk away. Change the subject. Do not in any way recognize that it even exists, or just say, I don't know about that. But what about this? Facts matter. Time to face the facts. Unless you resolutely draw them back to your point, you're gonna be mired in an endless, endless circular argument. Sometimes we talk to people on the phone that they just jump from one topic to another, to another, to another. You try to explain this and they're on to another subject. You can do that all day long and never go anywhere. You won't get any traction by doing that for most people. You've got to say, wait a minute, you didn't answer my point here. Come back to it, and they'll try another dodge. Use another one of these examples. Try something else. No, 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 come back and answer this before we can go on. Otherwise, we're done. That's how you've got to do it until they finally say, well, I'll look into it. And that's what all you want them to do is look into it and prove it. In John 8, we find that Yahshua had some problems. We sometimes do in convincing other people of the truth of the word. John eight forty five, and because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. 46, which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He had the same problems. He that is of Elohim hears Yahweh's words. You, therefore, hear them not because you are not of Yahweh. You see, it might be that they just aren't being called. All you can do is plant the seed. You can't make it grow. You know, you can lead the horse to water. That's as good as you can do. You've got to let Yahweh take it from there if he's calling them. And sometimes it takes one or two more exposures before people wake up and think, oh, Hey, I was told that once. That starts to make sense to them. The first exposure sometimes right over their heads. They just reject it out of hand. And that's normally what people do when they hear something new. They just kind of stand back. "Eh, I don't know about that. But when they hear it again and again and again, oh, maybe there is something to that. I'll look at that. I think a lot of us came to the truth that way. Maybe at first... And I'm always kind of fearful of the guy who accepts everything right away. I mean, he, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe, believe, believe. But it the roots don't go deep. Next thing you know, is off into something else. So you've got to be grounded. You have to prove everything. And, you know, get grounded first in one thing and go on to the next. Well, I pray the next time that someone tries to pull the wool over your eyes that you'll have some better insight into the methodology that people use to argue and you can call them at their game and recognize when they're doing this say wait a minute, come back come back to the scriptures but just don't let them wiggle out of it, don't move on until they answer the point, that's all you can that's all you can do, otherwise you'll be locked into an endless loop and you'll never go anywhere with them they'll just keep throwing things at you you throw things back at them and back and forth, back and forth Yahweh's word is a powerful sword and does not need any trickery. It doesn't need propaganda. That's his word. It stands on its own. And we can be assured as we stand on the word that what we're teaching is right. It's accurate. It's true. The word of Yahweh is true. Just remember, Yahshua said in John 8, he tells those gainsayers who didn't want to believe him that if they refuse the truth, They were not of Yahweh. So you're not responsible beyond what you teach them unless they ask for more help. Otherwise, rejection is on them, and Yahweh will have to deal with them from then on. May Yahweh bless you, and have a great Sabbath. Hallelujah.